Hey, Kara, a long time no see. I know, it's been, what, two hours? I managed to eat and shower and finish cleaning my office in that time. Well, the folks out there will have no idea how that's possible since it's two weeks between our episodes. But Kara and I just recorded an episode and then I submitted a bunch of nominations for grad students, went to a party, handed out a bunch of awards, ate a bunch of cake, and I am riding on a sugar high. You are winning. But I also like the idea that our listeners may think I've only showered once in that two-week interval. Well, you know. (laughs) It's possible. This job is really busy. We're busy. We're really busy. We're busy people. Anyway, we have got the absolutely wonderful Dr. Robin Nelson on our show today. Hi, everyone. Hi, hi. And I'm totally going to start this off the way we have two other interviews, I guess, now. That Robin and I are both Michigan Wolverines. Hello. He was right. a grad student when I was an undergrad, and we now have how many Michigan connections through this pod? Chris is so upset by all this. I'm not. You guys <laughs> went down hard to Ohio State. We're rocking it. So I have no. <laughs> You're just jealous. You're just jealous. It's amazing how many people have come out of that program, though, both grad and undergrad. It's a huge program. I mean, look, there were something like 50 faculty, including those who were co-affiliated with other departments and things like that when I was in graduate school. So, I mean, if you're thinking that you're a committed four-field department, you've got a ton of faculty, you're just churning out. Like, our graduate school cohort was one of the smallest at 17. The one Mm. above us, Adam Van Arsdale's cohort, had something like 40. So, you know, even when you have folks who leave academia, you are still kind of flooding the gates there with graduate students and then, mm-hmm. and then faculty later on. Well, I think it speaks to what the heritage and legacy are of building a strong program. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't have any issue with it whatsoever. It's really interesting for those of us who came from other programs to see this and to know what kind of programs we're looking to get involved with. If our listeners want to go to grad school, it's not just that everybody wanted to be cool and hang out with each other. It's it's a really strong program. And it's like joining a fraternity or sorority in that that heritage lends itself to professional lifelong connections. So it's I mean, kind of say. You know, we call it the mafia once you're in, you're in. And it also speaks to the mentorship at both levels. I mean, to have as many undergrads that have come out and be successful in this field. I feel like you don't see that as often with undergrad programs. And again, it might be my selection bias mm-hmm. and just my bias towards Michigan. But it does seem like a lot of us come out. We also knew you, right? Like we as graduate students knew our undergrads that were really committed to anthropology and we are still friendly at meetings. I mean, and really friendly, not just, you know, collegially like, hi, how you doing? But like, let's go have dinner. Let's catch up. Let's see what's going on with your career. And the only thing I find challenging about it is it's aging me as <laughs> people who were once undergrads when I was a grad student. Like I remember Adam and I told Kara this recently, but I remember Adam and Van Arsdale was like, oh, you know Kara, like, she's a rock star, she's going to be great. And, like, we knew that there were a whole handful of students, Zach, sophomore, we knew a bunch of those students were going to go on to grad school and, and stay in the field because they were just interested. They were in the lab after hours. They were doing independent research projects. So we're happy that family is big. Yeah, I can't tell you, like, there's still the me that views you as the grad student and me as the undergrad. And so hearing you say that still just warms the cockles of my heart. Oh, yes. <laughs> what's, a co- what's a cockle of a heart? I don't know. There, there's something. Is it the oracles? I don't know. 
I don't know. It's part of the heart. Anyway, Robin, we've, I mean, we've started a little bit on some of the origin because we talked about your grad school, but maybe give us the entire origin story of how you got into anthropology and then why you decided to pursue it as a career. Start with the egg and the sperm and go from there. Right. So the origins. So truthfully, I arrived at undergraduate wanting to be a, a pre-med student and really thought that that's what I was going to do. And I took a lot of pre-med classes, as a lot of students do. I also, yes, as a student do. of color, right? And also as a student of color. And I kind of, you know, was looking for a career path that was going to be financially stable. That also was interesting to me. And I was always interested in health. So that's what I was going to do. I was going to be pre-med. Um, I took an anthropology class my sophomore year. I liked it, but I was still just kind of taking it. I didn't have to take it for a requirement. I just kind of took it and was like, okay, this is okay. Did but your mom fun. nudge you into that in, in any way? No. In fact, so my mother is an anthropologist. She's a linguistic anthropologist. She's retired. She was not really interested nor keen on me becoming an anthropologist. She was a literature professor and a writing professor for years. And true story, Rutgers kind of, not Rutgers, excuse me, Stockton University, where she was faculty, kind of changed their rules. They wanted people to have PhDs for tenure, that kind of thing. She went back. She was a mother of two kids, a primary wage earner, also primary care parent, and was trying to figure out a PhD program that would work for her. And there was a fellowship through Rutgers. And so she went and actually ended up getting a PhD with Sue Gao. Yeah. And so I saw her kind of do this commute from South Jersey all the way up to New Brunswick several times a week with a small kid and a teenager, like just, you know, nothing easy about that. And went back to the faculty full time, got tenure, continued teaching, began teaching in anthropology as well. But when I called her, like halfway through my junior year is kind of when I decided, oh, I don't actually want to do any of this other stuff anymore. I want to do anthropology. I'm not going to go to med school. I'm going to go to grad school in anthropology. And I called her and told her that, and she was deeply disappointed and tried to talk <laughs> me out of it. She gave me no illusions about that, about the academy. She knew exactly what I was signing myself up for on all levels and was not sure that that was something she was happy about. But I told her I was sure I was going to do it. I had spoken to my mentor, like, this is what I was doing. And by senior year, I just kind of knew I was taking a year off and then I was going to go back to graduate school. I did not, though, think that I was going to move off of the coast. I thought I would only ever live for my entire life between Boston and D.C. So can I pause you there? I just want to follow up on this because I think you make in our lead up to actually starting the interview and now you make some important points I think it's worth talking about. So. My professors always seem to be dissuading me from pursuing anthropology. And I was always like, why do you want me not to do this Mm -hmm. gig that sounds super cool? And now I do the same. I don't necessarily dissuade them, but I try to be really honest about how hard it was for me with white male privilege and having recognized having children and making it through grad school with them, what some of the boundaries are for others. And so they should know. And I, and I wonder if your mother told you some of those same things. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, it was a different moment in academia, for sure. Uh, the pressures for publication were far less, but there was a lot of teaching pressure. And I was well aware of the challenges she faced as a Black woman 
in terms of seniority not mattering the way it mattered for other folks, tenure not mattering or being protective in the way that it was for other folks, students, not all students, of course, she has wonderful students she's still in touch with, but like a lot of pushback from students. She taught things like AFAM Lit, right? And so a lot of pushback from students about, you know, why are you always talking and teaching about Black people in an AFAM Lit class, right? She just was like, these are the things you're going to have to deal with. And the pay does not, there's none of hazard pay for the kind of work that you're going to take on, the amount of work you're going to take on. And it looks really prestigious from the outside, but the challenges within are, are quite big. And she was very clear on that. And I was clear on that. I mean, I heard her on the phone my whole life talking to her colleagues and friends about what she was dealing with. And so I kind of knew what I was signing up for. And I think it's very challenging when I talk about my background because, not very challenging, but it's challenging in that when you say that you have a faculty member of parent, there's a lot of privilege that comes along with that. I never thought, oh gosh, this is a lot of work. This is just what work looked like to me. I don't think I understood how to work in another field. I always understood you'd be working on the weekends and the evenings, even though I try actually to not do that now. But like, that is what it always looked like. You're always reading, you're always thinking, you're always working, right? Um, so that part of it, like I got, as I was mentioning, I got a lot of cultural capital in her being a faculty member and that I understood what the academy was like. I did not have a lot of financial capital because a lot of family struggles. And so we were actually white poor growing up at certain points, no hot water, no heat, cars that didn't run, just real challenges. And so I never really equated being in the academy with financial security in the way that it might look like from the outside. Mm -hmm. I want to let you finish your story, but I just, I'm reading this book right now by Kiese Lehman. Do you know his oh, work? Oh, yes. And I haven't read it yet. Are you reading heavy? Yeah. I haven't read it yet, but yes. It's fantastic, and it speaks directly to what you're what you're saying, that the same issue with a parent who is a professor yet still being broke, poor. It's a great book. I'm loving it. Yeah, I have to read it immediately, immediately. I'm kind of like bracing myself for it because he's a tremendous writer, mm -hmm. and I know that his story is going to be a lot to carry, so I'm trying to get myself right to read it. Yes. I just stumbled on Bakari, African American uh, writer, literature professor, now at Old Miss, who was raised in Mississippi, then went to university in I think Oberlin, Ohio, then Indiana University, where I started, then worked as a lecturer at Vassar, which I used to live right by and it's now back in the south so i also found tremendous resonance uh or i'm still finding i haven't finished it yet but fantastic book yeah so all of this kind of shaped me and and i kind of never thought i would leave the east coast as i was mentioning and i applied to a bunch of schools and i got into two schools i got in chicago and i got into michigan and that was it and so midwest uh, no matter what yeah i was in the midwest <laughs> I was not going to be a bioanthro. One of them I was going to be working with cultural anthropologists and one I was going to be working with biological anthropologists. And at that time, you know, I did not understand how divided our field can be sometimes, right? Like I didn't understand that if I had been working with cultural anthropologists at Chicago, I probably would have never engaged with bioanthro in a kind of research way again. Like I didn't get that. I was kind of like, I mean, this is so kind of naively 21 year old me, but like, I kind of figured, you know, I have ideas and I'm going to go to grad school and I'm going to like do my ideas. And like these faculty members are just going to like help shepherd me 
I didn't really get the kind of the way mentoring works in graduate school where you are really going to work with a person or a set of people and their ideas. And I'm really, really lucky where I landed because it all kind of worked out well because I didn't really get that. And that's being the child of an academic. I had no idea that that's the way it really worked. I just kind of thought it was a little bit like college, but that I would get to focus on the research things that I was interested in. And so the questions I was interested in were in the Caribbean, they had to do with health, like these are the things I was gonna do. And truthfully, not to, you know, I wanna say all roads lead to Paul Harmer, but you know how this goes, right? I was in an undergraduate class, we did not have a bioanthro person. We did have a medanthro person. She was a lecturer, Pat Simons, and she taught a class called AIDS in the International Perspective. And I tweeted about this recently, but my aunt died of AIDS when I was 15. And so I was very interested in issues around HIV AIDS. And I thought, I'm going to do this crazy thing. I'm going to like bring together biology and anthropology, and I'm going to like talk about it as like one thing. And then Paul Farmer came to class and gave a talk. And I was like, oh, like I kind of want to do what he does, which means there's already like a whole field of people who do what he does. So that's how I ended up kind of being interested in medical anthropology, bioanthro, and, and then eventually more biocultural questions. So I guess leading off that, you, you sent us a recent piece of work. And I think one of the wonderful contributions you have made to anthropology is honestly holding up a mirror as well as, I guess, a microscope to our field pointing out where we could be doing a whole lot better with what it is we do. And in this piece, you kind of discuss how anthropology is trending more towards quantitative, quantitative, quantitative. What are all these tiny measurements that we can take and these new technologies that we can use to take those measurements? And that it's coming at the expense of more qualitative methods. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of unpack that a little bit since the piece isn't out feel free to reveal as much as you want to reveal. And then how you actually notice this trend. So this came out of a session that I was invited to be in at the AAAs a few years ago um, by Sangi Lee and colleagues. And it was on the familiar and strange. That was the topic of the AAA that year. But it was about methods. And so this was my, you know, what's the familiar and strange with methods? And how did I want to think about this? And what I realized in terms of bioanthro and having gone to the AAPAs now, HBAs, and AAAs for years and years, not that many, but you know, since like around 2005, was that like the topics of talks, the sessions were getting ever more kind of specialized in a kind of methodological mode. We're going to study energetics, like this is how we can, then we've always been interested in energetics, right? But it's like, if we're going to study energetics, like how can we more accurately and finitely kind of study energetics? If we're going to do biomarkers around like stress and health, like what are the very specific things that we can study? And, and you would get talks, and these talks are kind of needed, so I don't want to kind of malign them at all. But we would get talks that were kind of like, I'm not using that method anymore, I'm using this one. And if you really want to kind of get at cardiovascular health, you need to get at like this method now. And so the talks kind of started to move away from population level questions, community and cultural practice level questions, and kind of were almost getting very, very particular and specific around a method. And I was seeing this happen, you know, my partner is an archeologist and so we talked about like the increased use of LIDAR and other techniques in archaeology where you see this too, where it's kind of like, I have a new toy. I have a new tool. How can I use my new toy and my new tool to think about old questions? 
great, except I felt like we were losing the forest for the trees there a little bit in that we were getting these very precise measurements around different physiological processes, but we are not, and there's lots of reasons for this, we don't have a lot of time or bandwidth or energy for pulling back then and saying, okay, if I was able to measure cardiovascular health at this level of specificity or stress levels at this level of specificity or growth in this way. What does that mean now about the particular challenges or issues or changes occurring within this particular community? And I use this piece, Methods Without Mechanisms, to kind of get at what we should be doing in the field to return to an emphasis or an equal emphasis on qualitative questions. I think that we need to be real clear about why we're asking the questions we are and why we're using the methods we are. It's great to have the methods. Don't get me wrong. This is why I'm into bioandro. I love the science of it. It's what we do. But what makes us different from physiologists, what makes us different from public health folks who work on child growth is that we actually can do this big picture kind of thing where we put all the pieces together. I think there's lots of reasons why we've moved away from it. I mean, I think there's, we're kind of in a storm right now of increasing publication pressures. There is money and there is funding around certain kinds of science. And so when we start thinking about how do I get my pubs out? How do I get funded for my research? These methods become really, really attractive. Having time and energy and the freedom to do slow research and really in-depth qualitative research, a lot of us don't have that. I'm very clear on that, right? The blame here isn't on our colleagues. It's just kind of on like, it's a question about who we wanna be as a field and what kind of contribution we wanna to make to the science and to not get lost in, in methods that are really interesting but don't actually give us any more clarity on the larger questions that are facing the communities with which we work. I think you make a great point. Your answer as well is in this paper, and I, I see a symptom of that even in a biocultural program in training students and sending them out to do research and seeing how they return to me and write up everything they've done focused exclusively on the bio stuff that's linked to some equipment or some measurement that they took at the expense of their observations or if they don't have everything done and they're worried about what they can present at a conference. Like, well, you've been working in this setting for six months. What have you seen? Your observations are data. Yeah, it's so challenging and we don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion lately about the abstracts we submit for our conferences and how to make sure they kind of get approved, even if they don't have like a p-value, right? I was just going to say, we just throw a p-value in there. Right. Throw a p-value in, right? Run some stats, throw a p-value, throw an effect size in there and like get that bad boy approved. Those of us who work in biocultural programs, those of us who do human bio work, like we actually contribute more than that to the discussion. I worry sometimes that there is a kind of shininess about the numbers, which I get entirely. For example, for my research in Jamaica, I would not have asked appropriate questions in my study on child growth and development for kids who are living in, in kind of state-sponsored care institutions if I had not been working in Jamaica since 2004. 
Mm-hmm. I had depth there, so I understood what families look like and what the diversity of kind of care situations and what a children's home that is kind of really trying to impact change with their limited resources, what they could be doing that would look kind of similar to home. But if you go there and you are doing truthfully a little bit of colonial anthro where you show up and you have your ideas about what a family looks like and you have ideas about what function, what's functional, what's not functional and what's healthy and what's not healthy and then you just throw your biomarkers on top of that, you are not gonna have data that make any sense or really are a contribution to our field. And you know, if you look at all the early literature out of the Caribbean, not all of it, but a big swath of it, you know, you have this kind of denigration of men's work in families, that men weren't really doing any fathering because they weren't in the home. And then research that comes out of like, say the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, actually now men are doing actually quite a bit of parenting. They feel very strongly about contributing to the family. They also recognize the limitations when they're not living in the home with with their kids. And, And it was a much more kind of nuanced take. And so what I'm hoping that we can do as human biologists is kind of remember that we need to be very mindful about the qualitative data and let that equally inform our research as much as our, our quantitative findings. And I think it needs to be as equally rewarded and recognized because right now it's not. No, I mean, that's exactly what you're saying. And so we don't have that time and effort to put towards it because we're busy putting that data in order and our p-values and getting the next shiny piece of equipment. Exactly. You know, this piece, I'm thankful that Kathy uh, Willamette over at Central Michigan and Sanghealy at UCR provided a venue for me to talk about this. There was not an easy spot for this to be published, you know? And so I thanked them in email several times, like, thanks for the space to talk about this. Thanks for the space, because I didn't really know how to think about this. And there's a lot of us thinking about it right now. This past summer, I put together a... Um, a workshop at Max Planck with Katie Starkweather and Michelle Klein. And one of the things we were thinking about was long-term field site maintenance. Mm. And part of the reason why we were thinking about like, how do you continue to build relationships with people that you, where you're working in the field? Um, like how do we continue those relationships and build those relationships and steward the work that's done there appropriately so that the folks that the communities with which we work are not being exploited and we are not, folks are not dropping in and out. Like I'm just going to come in and do some research without a real acknowledgement of the work that it takes to maintain lived relationships with a community that we're not just kind of dropping in and out. And we, and we kind of put this together because we realized this is something that's not discussed in bioanthro. We don't really talk about it. We talk about the nice numbers that come out on the other end, but we don't really talk about the labor that it takes to create and maintain relationships with folks and to make sure that you are doing community engaged and led research and you're not just kind of dropping in and taking stuff you need and being rewarded for it and not really respecting the folks with which you work. Yeah. Anyway, so building off what you said to then go back, you know, working with biological anthropologists, how to make enduring field sites that are mutually beneficial for the science and the people. What advice do you think you could give to graduate students who are, you know, first starting off designing their projects for the very first time and wanting to include the qualitative and the quantitative, but might be getting pushback, say, in reviews or from advisors? So I will say that um, I am not the best one to give advice on this. I'm going to give it. 
But I will say that I'm not the best one to give advice because I will not say that my experience has been normative, right? And so I will give kind of my outlier story and then ask folks to take what they can from it and use what they can, knowing that following the model may not work. I went to Michigan to work with one person. That did not work out. Thankfully, Roberto Fersancho took me under his wing and truthfully, John Matani did too. And they were just kind of like, you'll be fine, do your thing, right? And I don't think that happens in a lot of programs, but they were confident in me and their confidence in me went a long way. And they were confident in me even when I needed help and my work was not as strong as it needed to be. And I needed to really improve some things. And, you know, so my committee ended up being Milford, John, and for Sancho. And they're like three disparate fields. And like, and they were just kind of like, we're going to mold you and get you going. And the reason why their confidence in me mattered was that I had ideas about what I thought was appropriate. And I had ideas about what could get done in Jamaica. There was no one in my department who worked in, no one in BioAnthro who worked in the Caribbean. And I did speak to someone, a bioanthro in another department who shall not be named, about working in Jamaica. And I was at a conference. It was probably not the best approach. I was a graduate student. I didn't know how to do this. I just kind of was like, can, can, can I ask you a couple questions? And this person kind of laughed at me and was like, good luck. There are field sites that are harder to work at because for great reasons that have to do with mistrust of Americans, histories of colonialism, like folks don't have the time or energy to be kind of dealing with you. And so I knew that my smaller sample size uh, with my dissertation work was appropriate for the amount. I had spent 15, 14 months there and I knew that this is what I could do and this was appropriate. And later on, other Caribbeanists said to me, you did fine. But there were other folks outside the department who were kind of like, that's kind of small, da 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 But these were also folks who were working on field sites that had been established for 20 years where people were just kind of coming in and out and collecting data. And that was not what I did. I went somewhere and asked questions and got folks to participate. And so what I would say to graduate students is if you want to really include qualitative data, which I think you should, uh, you need to really be clear about why you need those data with your advisor, with the faculty that you work with. You need to lay it out for them the way you would for a boss at a job. Because while they are your mentor and they are your professor, they are also trying to shepherd you in a professional sense. And so if you are clear that, look, I need to stay this long, I need to ask these kinds of questions, I need to live in this kind of area, this is what I need, Give them citations, give them literature, give them comparative studies that look like the kind of study that you want to put together and lay it all out for them so that you can say, no, see, because this is how I envision my career and these are the successful people who've done this kind of work and this is how they do their work, so I know that I need to do this kind of thing. And I think that if you can show, not all of our colleagues, but a lot of our colleagues, if you can show them that you have been very thoughtful about this, and you are deliberate in your thinking. And this is not just some kind of idea you have, but like you really are focused. 
many of them will get on board. And if they're not on board, you tell them to call me because we will have a conversation. <laughs> because I, you know, and I, so I also think that you might, and, and not all faculty members are open to this, but you might need to be a little bit forceful about getting an outside faculty member to be on your committee. You might want to check through your university's guidelines about whether you can have someone outside the department or outside the university in total, because sometimes what you need is another voice in there that is a peer of your advisor, who where they're never going to be exactly a peer because you are your advisor's student, but they can say, hey, hey, no, look, there's this whole body of literature here that is validating what your student is saying, and I think we can all get on board to help them get closer to what they want to do with their project. I would say that it's going to, unfortunately, for a lot of our students, take a lot of effort on their part to kind of get this together and line it up the way they want it lined up. Real quick, sorry. I just have to go on record and say I love Robin Nelson, and I'm really, really sorry she knows that. Kara's going to finish up for me. Yes, I love you too, Chris Lynn. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, the text messages go back and forth of, wait, which question are you asking next? And now it's like, oh, crap, I have to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everything for life. Just go, yeah. All the things happening, because it's the end of the semester. So That's let's right. just all in. I'm spending all of January in Finland, and so we've been doing back-to-back-to-back interviews to get as many in the can before I leave. That's exciting, though. I'm a little concerned. 24 hours of darkness. I've yeah. never experienced that. You have got to report back to us and tell us what it feels like. I'm telling people that they're going to have to Skype me and just point the camera at the sun. Yeah, yeah, like I'll just be like, we're in the I'm seriously concerned about my mental health for this trip. No, but I would anyway. be too. I would be too. Upstate New York is its own challenge, right? Like It is. No, totally. I mean, but, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. Winter is nothing new to me. But yes. 24 hours of darkness, that's, I have nothing, no experience to even come up with how I'm going to react to that. I know, I know that Jamie, Jamie Clark, archaeologist, um, you know, who's at Michigan, yeah. she says that the darkness is hard, but also the light during yeah. summer is also hard because it makes you feel a little off in that way. You think you're just going to settle down and get some work done, but it's like 11 p.m. and you should be asleep and, you know. I was there in May and they were approaching like full light at that point. And you know, you wake up at three in the morning to go pee and you see a tiny sliver of light through the window and you're like, well, I'm done. Time to get out. <laughs> you just get things done. Oh my gosh. So yeah, I, I think 24 hours of daylight is annoying. Yes. But I think 24 hours of darkness might have some severe mental... It would, it would make me very depressed. I know that. If I had to stay there, you know, winter after winter, if it was not one experience, but it was like, okay, you've moved to Finland, I think I would struggle. Yeah, so I'm very curious. And the timing just never works out right for, like, calling my husband. Because basically by the time I'm going to bed, he has to get ready for work. Yeah. And when I can talk in the morning, like, it doesn't line up. It's just wrong. So yeah. it's a struggle. Yeah. That's very hard. Anyway, I have two more questions. One is going to be about work, and then one is going to be the fun question. Yeah. The other paper you sent us, I'll give the title, and it was in AJHB, I believe, 2016. Residential Context, Institutional Alloparental Care, and Child Growth in Jamaica. If you could give us a really brief rundown, and then I want to bring it back to the whole quantitative and qualitative thing. But for those who have not read it, give us, like, the five-sentence version. <laughs> The five sentence version is that there are children for numerous different reasons that don't end up living with their families, extended families included. 
they end up living in state-sponsored childcare homes. My question was, what is their experience in their homes? What can we say about growth? What can we say about quality of life for kids who are living in these homes as compared to their peers who are living in various arrangements, but with family members largely? Um, and what I found is that for younger kids, particularly boys, well, boys and girls, as you might expect, children who lived in children's homes were doing not as well with regards to various metrics around growth than their peers living with family members. However, there was one children's home where the boys were doing relatively well. And it's a small sample size relatively, but for the parish that I work in, there are six children's homes. All of Jamaica is about the size of Connecticut, as I've said several times to folks. This is, so this is a very kind of small space, and within it, there were six children's homes. So while three children's homes isn't representative of children's homes across the island by any means, but it is an interesting kind of case study for what is going on in this space, which happens to have a lot of children's homes. In this work, you did do the quantitative and the qualitative. And so I guess my question is, and it's a complete hypothetical, what from this work and this big picture do you think you would have missed without that qualitative part? Without the qualitative piece, there are some findings that were unique to the children's home where the boys were doing well that I would have missed. There is cultural baggage that we all bring into our research with us, even when we think that we really understand the different contexts in which we work. We still bring ideas in. Two of the things that I know that I understand better because of my time working in Jamaica and my relationship to Jamaica, I have family members there, I now have very close friends there. One are people's relationship or parents' relationship to their children's mental health and what they feel like they can and can't do to support that, much less kids who are living in a children's home. All of the caretakers, all of the directors of the children's homes were very concerned about child mental health, were also cash-strapped and worried about how to best kind of improve their kids' mental health. That is something that I kind of understand the nuances of because I've spent a lot of time there, how people feel about it, what it looks like when you're giving a lot of care and attention to mental health care, that kind of thing. The other piece about the fact that there was an open pantry policy at the children's home where the boys were doing better, that is very unique. That is not a, it's not like in everyone's own personal homes. Everyone just eats freely out of the refrigerator all the time. So for this to be put into place at a children's home was kind of a big deal. And that is not something I necessarily would have noticed, probably would have taken note of it, but maybe I would not have thought to include it really in my understanding of the growth metrics and the differences mm -hmm. in growth that I was observing. And so I think that with the qualitative information, we can't always put our finger on directly why it's so valuable. I can't necessarily always come home from the field and say, I learned X, Y, and Z, and that's going to be really useful in the future. But what it is, is kind of like an accumulation of knowledge and information. And like you said earlier, it needs to be valued more in clear ways and rewarded because it improves our research greatly when we can invest in better knowledge. Knowing you know, who has better growth metrics or, or worse growth metrics, it doesn't really, I mean, it matters, of course, with regards to the health to the kids, but, but what are you saying? Besides these kids are taller and these kids are shorter, or these kids are a little heftier in a great way and these kids are a little slimmer in a way that's concerning, what else are we saying? 
beyond that? And why is that a useful contribution if we have nothing else to add that gives that research any depth? We have to value the depth. And there you have it, everybody. The reasons to include qualitative approaches in your work in combination with quantitative approaches. To end out the interview, as we've been trying to do now with all interviews, we like to end with a fun thing. So what do you do for fun or balance or what are you watching, reading, or listening to for fun? I've been thinking about this. Uh, when you first have a kid, it's, it can be hard, especially as a full-time working parent, to like take time for yourself or do very much stuff that isn't around-the-clock care. My youngest is now 17 months. I have started running again. That has been really nice. And it's just time for me to be in my own head and spend some time with myself. Mm -hmm. That's been really, really rewarding. I've been trying not to put too much pressure on myself about how long I run or how fast I run and all these things that really mattered a lot to me back in like 2009 before I had kids. I'd be like, I ran five miles today. I ran six miles today. Now I'm just kind of like, I went out, right? Like I did something that was good for me. So I do that. I also realized that during the end of the fall term, mm. we start to get Oscar buzz, right? We start to hear what movies are like. That would make sense of Santa Clara. Yeah. Right. And I like to take this time where my children are still at school and I am not teaching to sneak in a movie every now and then during the day. Tuesdays is our budget day at our high-end theater. So I like to go over there. But yeah, I have a whole roster of movies that I want to see right now. So I'm trying to see if Beale Street could talk. I'm trying to see Widows. I've got to finish, and this is not like Oscar buzz, but I've got to finish my lineup of Marvel movies so that oh, I yeah. watch Infinity War so that I can watch Avengers 4 because all of this is now catching up so I found out that in my adulthood I realized that I'm actually into comic book movies I'm into Marvel movies I don't think I really realized how much I love them did your son have an impact on that because I see you posting his love of Marvel so he <laughs> didn't what I realized was he would mention things and then I would be telling the character's backstory to him interesting you know, he was like how you know what happened with Hulk and I'm like well let me tell you about Bruce Banner you know <laughs> and when he gets really angry you know like he can't contain it and I was realizing that I knew all of these backstories because I actually really love the narratives behind a lot of Marvel characters and so I have allowed myself to kind of indulge in those movies I have been traveling more and on planes they're like my favorite thing to watch so nice. that's what I do for fun I try to take care of myself and truthfully, the last thing, spending time with my family on the weekends is actually really a hard, nice break on the work week. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it feels like I want to keep working and I'm like, oh, I have to stop. But it's really good to have to shut off that part of my brain sometimes. I absolutely agree. Uh, a follow-up question. Do you do a big Oscar party or go do a big Oscar I party? But we, we do have like some groups online where we're like kind of commenting and I'm always tweeting about the Oscars while they're on. You know, I'm always kind of following. I feel a little bit ambivalent about investing too much in the Oscars because of the way that women and people of color have been marginalized by the Oscars repeatedly every year. So, you know, I don't want to get invested in that kind of representation. But at the same time, 
when like moonlight wins, I'm thrilled, right? So I, I have this kind of tear of like wanting to know why certain films are being discussed, but also recognizing the kind of fallacy in the whole venture. Robin, this has been a delight. So how can people get a hold of you? You are very active on Twitter. Would you mind sharing your handle? Sure, it is Robin G. Nelson. So I have a kind of odd middle name, so just at Robin with an I, G. Nelson, on Twitter, or you can always email me at my Santa Clara email, which is rnelson at scu.edu. I love hearing from folks. I love hearing from graduate students or other faculty as we try to both do better research and make the academy more hospitable for all of us. So please be in touch. Your work definitely does that and we, we greatly appreciate it. It's a heavy burden. Thank you, but I, it's worth it. It's worth it. I will tell you Chris' Twitter handle, as soon as I look it up in the text message he sent me, <laughs> Chris's Twitter handle is at Chris underscore L-Y. Mine is at Kara Akabak. We have been the Saucers of Science. You should totally subscribe, rate it, and share it with your friends. Thank you all so much for listening, and Robin, thank you so much again. Thank you.